0: Welcome to the podcast, On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce L. S. Benson. As always, you can find us on Twitter at On Pod and Instagram at On Podcast. Send your comments or questions to onbecoming at gmail.com. And if you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you would like to help us grow, please consider recommending us to your friends, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or donating to our Patreon, which includes access to exclusive members-only content. For this week's episode, we're focusing on what Robert Lifton calls the demand for purity. In many religions, there is a demand for purity, though exactly the form that takes depends not merely on the religion, but on the particular version of that religion. Purity of mind and body is central to evangelicalism. The world is filled with so many temptations. Everything one does or thinks becomes open to criticism. One worries that something impure looks around every corner, an impure thought, an impure deed. More than anything else, evangelicals have historically insisted on living what they consider to be a holy life. However, that insistence on holiness is problematic, to say the least. If all of us are victims of original sin, how is it possible to do anything good? Strong Calvinists insists that none of us can do anything good apart from the grace of God. Arminians are more sanguine about human beings and their ability to do the right thing. One could argue, though, that neither of these positions are very uplifting if, in the end, we are utterly sinful creatures— and asking us not to sin merely creates a burden of guilt over something that we have little control. No one can live up to the standards created by evangelicalism. Failure is to be expected. Yet one can blame it on the world, which is a way both to diminish one's guilt and to make the world seem even more wicked. Evangelicalism thrives on comparing itself to the world. Since evangelicalism uses its own moral yardstick, evangelicals come out looking really good, well, at least to themselves. You might ask, so what is this yardstick? The answer is going to surprise you. Those looking at Christianity from the outside are more likely to focus on the teachings of Jesus as the central ideas around which the various forms of Christianity have been assembled. Perhaps this goes without saying, but it's important to remember that what Jesus teaches isn't coextensive with any particular version of Christianity. This point is why I'm more comfortable talking about Christianities. If we speak of Christianity as if it were one thing, we miss both the rich diversity of it and the conflicts within Christianity. Some of those conflicts are mere adiaphora, in other words, things that don't really matter. Others are more like matters of life and death, and I don't mean that metaphorically. Among those teachings, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, and it is considered paradigmatic for Christian behavior. But otherwise, this is the very heart of Jesus' teaching. There are many other things that Jesus says elsewhere that are important. But the Sermon on the Mount is really the touchstone text for Jesus' teachings. You have probably heard things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. This is where Jesus says, If you're about to leave an offering on the altar, First, make sure you and your brother have been reconciled. It's also where he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Of course, the most demanding thing that Jesus says is, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's something you should know. When Nietzsche rails against Christian morality, it's this requirement, more than anything else, that Nietzsche resists. He has no brief with things like lying and stealing. In fact, in two different texts, he says more or less the same thing, and I'm quoting now. It goes without saying that I do not deny, unless I am a fool, that many actions called immoral ought to be avoided and resisted, or that many called moral ought to be done. Those who think Nietzsche is simply against any sort of morality need to read their Nietzsche more carefully. Now, as it turns out, Nietzsche isn't that far away from evangelicals. For many evangelicals swallowed the teachings of dispensationalism, which is the belief that God deals differently with different people at different times. It's based on the teachings of someone named John Nelson Darby, who was an important influence on the Plymouth Brethren, a very conservative denomination that is often seen as one of the forerunners to evangelicalism. Perhaps you've heard of the Schofield Bible, which is widely available and published with Oxford University Press, so not too shabby. That Bible is organized around dispensationalist teachings. To give an example of what is meant by a dispensation, there was what dispensationalists call innocence, that's humans in the Garden of Eden. Then later there's the dispensation of law, that's more or less the Old Testament, which is replaced by the dispensation termed to grace, that's more or less the New Testament. But here's where things get really weird. Dispensationalists believe that the Sermon on the Mount is a preview of the Millennial Kingdom. It's about life in heaven, not life on earth. In other words, all that stuff about the blesseds and lusting be in form of adultery and loving your enemies stuff, it does not apply to our age. Put otherwise, you could just ignore what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, it sounds very lovely, but you know, it's not designed for here. We can't live that out. It's going to be in heaven which is more or less in line with Nietzsche. Yes, you heard me correctly. Evangelicals are much closer to Nietzsche's idea of a good person than they realize. In one fell swoop, Jesus' most important teachings about morality are simply taken off the table, which means that evangelicals often don't take these passages very seriously. I have frequently said that evangelicals tend to ignore much of what Jesus taught Here we have a very specific example. Things Jesus says we should or should not do are viewed as pie in the sky. Another aspect of dispensationalism is, of course, the rapture, when all true believers will be magically transported to heaven. Yes, all of the left-behind books and movies are based on dispensationalism. When I was growing up, there was a book titled The Late Great Planet Earth, and it was declared by no less than the New York Times to be the best-selling non-fiction book of 1970. Of course, the non-fiction part is questionable. It would be too much to explain how all of this works, for it involves piecing together passages from the Old and New Testaments that, to be honest, seem like they have little to do with one another. The author, Hal Lindsey, cites an increase in famines, wars, and earthquakes, all events that foretell the end times. Did anyone mention to Lindsay that the so-called increase might be due to technology that allows reporters to know a great deal more about what's going on in the world? Anyway, Lindsay suggested that the end would come in the 1980s, a generation after the establishment of Israel. He particularly focused on the European Union, which he claimed would eventually become the United States of Europe, and then turn into a revived Roman Empire ruled by the Antichrist. I remember going to church one Sunday when I lived in Belgium, and someone pointed out the EU building we were passing was exactly where the Antichrist was supposed to be reigning when he came along. By the way, that book was made into a movie narrated by Orson Welles. However, Jesus also adds a bit of a downer, for he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me insert a quick point here. Jesus was pretty negative about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, so that statement should be read with that in mind. However, years ago, one of my cogs complained that the problem with the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, someone I've not mentioned so far on the podcast, is that he's too demanding in his expectations of moral responsibility. My response to her was, You think Levinas is demanding? Try Jesus. Put very briefly, Levinas believes that we have an absolute moral obligation to those we encounter in need. You might want to keep in mind that Levinas was Jewish and he lost most of his family in the Holocaust. And of course, given that Jewish heritage, he believes that we have an obligation not merely to our neighbor, but anyone we encounter. To make that a little bit more specific, Levinas is following Jewish custom, constantly privileging the marginalized in the community. If you have any question as to why, consider this passage from the first chapter of Isaiah what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices says the lord i have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts i do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats when you stretch out your hands i will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers i will not listen your hands are full of blood wash yourselves make yourselves clean Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The most important part of that passage is just how the term good is defined. It's about living justly, helping those in need, and specifically helping the orphan and the widow. The classic Jewish trope for deciding whether society is morally good or not is how it treats the least, the widow, the stranger, the orphan. Widows in ancient Israel had no status and thus were easy to ignore. In case you're thinking, well, that may have been true a long time ago, then you're a little out of touch with reality of what it's like to be a widow today. Not long ago I was speaking with a woman whose husband had recently died. See, she spoke glowingly of the wonderful times that they had had with other couples. But once her husband died, there were no more invitations. She simply didn't get invited to anything anymore. Just to be clear, the person to whom I spoke was a reasonably wealthy American woman, not someone destitute. If you've ever lived in a foreign country, then you know what it's like to be a stranger. Traveling somewhere for a couple of weeks gives you some idea of what it's like to be a stranger. But trust me, I'm now on my fourth country, which means I've been a stranger in three different countries and three different languages. Just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that people in Scotland speak another language, though there are definitely times when people have spoken to me here in English and I've had absolutely no idea what they just said. But the orphan is really the ultimate trope. Being a child with no parents means that you are all alone. Most countries today have various systems for orphans, but you really don't want to get swept up in that system if there's any way around it. We all know at this point about the kinds of abuse that have occurred in orphanages. Here's where things, though, get particularly interesting. The evangelical view is that we are all fundamentally sinful. There's some disagreement about just how sinful we are, but sin is considered to be basic to human nature. However, Evangelicals also believe that it's possible to live in a non-sinful or righteous way. Long before the purity movement for teenagers, evangelical children were told that they need to live lives of perfection. It was a heavy cross to bear. But it also seems suspect. Even though you are basically sinful, you can, somehow, by the grace of God, be perfect. The stark reality, of course, is that evangelicals are in most ways not a whole lot better than anybody else. But that reality can't even be admitted, so one is forced to lie, to put on a mask of spirituality. If you've ever been connected to an evangelical institution, a church, a school, a parachurch organization, then you'll experience this need to pretend to be sinless paragons of virtue. The further you go up the hierarchy, the greater the pressure becomes. Given the obvious lack of perfection from people who are thought to be fundamentally sinful, evangelical culture makes lying almost obligatory. Evangelicals are constantly forced to put up a perfect front, to act as if everything is just fine and they're free from sin. Although sin may exist, true believers can live a life that is nearly immune to it. Except that evangelicals aren't really immune to sin. Thus there have been and continually will be stark revelations of people like the evangelist Ravi Zacharias seeking sex in scores of the massage parlors, some of which he owned, or Bill Hybels, founder and pastor of the mega church Willow Creek Community Church, being guilty of sexual harassment, or Bill Gothard, whose seminar I was, shall we say, strongly encouraged to attend TWICE. Who taught and still teaches about the proper evangelical hierarchy in which the man is the head of the family and the wife and the children submit to him. He has been accused of sexual harassment by 34 women. A group of people who claimed that he'd personally harassed them tried to sue him and his organization back in 2018, but had to withdraw the suit due to what they termed the unique complexities regarding the statute of limitation. To be honest, even when I attended these seminars with the big red notebook, I kept thinking, this is like a cult. The idea that a father has absolute authority over his wife and children struck me as crazy. But again, I simply didn't have anyone that I could say that to, since most people I knew at that point practically worshipped him. Now, most of us know about the financial and sexual exploits of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, and Ted Haggard, who was then president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And the series of shocking revelations about sexual abuse and exploitation perpetrated by various evangelical leaders have only gotten louder as the Me Too movement has grown. For a long time evangelicals acted as if the revelations about abuse by Roman Catholic priests was just a Catholic thing. But the reality is that evangelicals are imperfect themselves. The result is that often there is not much more than a facade of spirituality of perfection. As I say, the problem here is that the system has been set up in a way that simply won't work. Evangelicals are supposed to be perfect. That's not the case, of course, so one needs to project an image of spirituality perfection. I've written a good deal on idols, and I've come to see something important. Idols are, in effect, stand-ins for the real thing. They have the appearance of being real, but they're actually fake. I think evangelical spirituality is often like an idol. It's all about being shiny and bright, looking good, seeming like a paragon of virtue. It's something masquerading as the real thing. But note that this problem results from a deep-seated incoherence in evangelicalism. On the one hand, we are inherently sinful and our thoughts are evil. On the other hand, even Jesus calls us to live a life of perfection. How are we supposed to make that combination work? The result of that basic contradiction is perfectionism, which is a typical feature of evangelicals. I have to admit that I developed what I would consider full-blown perfectionism, which made me far too demanding on myself and gave me the sense that I was never good enough to live up to evangelical standards. I don't know any passage in which Nietzsche says that he developed perfectionism from growing up in what, at that time, would have been the German equivalent of evangelicalism. And yet I still have the strong sense that Nietzsche suffered from this too, Let me be blunt. Perfectionism, or something like it, lays at the heart of great art, music, poetry, philosophy, and culture in general. Without perfectionism, we wouldn't have Michelangelo or Beethoven. Many musicians, for instance, have perfection as their goal, even if they've never put it in those terms. The guy who refinished my floors in my previous house was an absolute perfectionist, Regarding floors, I have absolutely no idea how sinful or righteous he was as a person. My advice? If you can find a tradesperson who is a perfectionist, you should hire that person. I remember a psychologist who thought that perfectionism is a gift that needs to be managed. That's probably about right. In what I've just said, note that I've merged two different senses of perfectionism. That of being sinless and that of producing works of art or theology that come as close to perfection as possible. These things are not exactly the same. Still, it's not hard to see that Western culture, which is basically Christian to its core, has produced perfectionism of both kinds. But of course, the drive for perfection has its costs. Evangelicals are required to repent of all their sins. But since sin is so basic to what human beings are, at least according to the evangelical view, one is in a constant state of repentance. I've mentioned this before, but one of the curious things about evangelicals' views on sin is that when we do something wrong, it's our fault. In contrast, when we do something right, God gets the credit. And it gets even worse. On the evangelical view, when we do something wrong, it's because we didn't let God work in our lives to lead us to righteousness. Again, it's always our fault whenever something goes wrong. But it's never to our credit when we do the right thing. I want to go, though, a little deeper. Evangelicalism frowns on us thinking that our own intuitions are reliable. It frowns when we try to recognize our personal needs and labels us selfish. Yet that means that we must, in effect, disappear. If you're thinking, oh, gosh, that's way too extreme, then how would you interpret what Paul says here? You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self corrupt and deluded by lusts. That point here is that your old self is bad. This is why Paul goes on to say, Clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Read in one sense, it sounds great. We move from sinfulness to righteousness. But what exactly is this so-called new self? I have no question that one can be converted to something, a religion, a political party, an economic system, but that normally doesn't require that you get rid of your old self. So my question is, just how metaphorical is all of this? Growing up as an evangelical, I wasn't taught to see this putting on the new self as merely metaphorical. Though today, to be honest, that's the only way I could read such a text. Yet I truly resist this idea that human beings are fundamentally sinful because of phenomenology. I've mentioned phenomenology before, so let me just say briefly, phenomenology is a way of doing philosophy, and by extension theology, by starting with the actual phenomenon, looking at what is the case. When I look at myself, and more important, when I look at others, I don't just see sinful nature. Usually what I see are people trying to do their best. Yes, there are slackers, and there are people who don't try and do their best, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Any of us can become too preoccupied by our own agendas and fall into something selfish. But I don't see those people as the majority. Jerry Falwell Sr. meant something very different with his term, the moral majority. When he first came up with this idea, he meant that the media and Hollywood didn't represent the real America composed largely of fundamentalist and evangelical Christians, But I think that a phenomenological study would show that most people really do want to do the right thing. Socrates, for instance, believed that if you're convinced that something is really the right thing, you'll do it. Philosophers since then had questioned this, in some cases thinking that Socrates is simply deluded. If it's true that Socrates is deluded, then I have to confess I'm a bit deluded too. Because while there's no question that people sometimes do things that they really know are wrong, Most of us, most of the time, try not to do that. Remember Socrates' point is that most of us don't do things that we know are bad. When I say us, I'm not talking about evangelicals or Christians or really anyone in particular. I'm simply stating that I believe that most people are not fundamentally motivated by some principle like always do the wrong thing or whenever possible break a rule. I'm not in any way suggesting the idea that infants are born pure and then society corrupts them. From my viewpoint, that's just the reverse of the evangelical presumption and is its own kind of fundamentalism. Why can't we just say instead that human beings are mixed bag, full of good things and bad things? We can do wonderful, loving, and gracious things, and we can do absolutely awful things. When the philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote about the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the subtitle of her book was The Banality of Evil. Her point was simple. While we think of what the Nazis did as the nadir of evil, it had been all too easy for Eichmann just to do what he was told and not think very much about it. Which is to say, any one of us could be evil. Nietzsche makes the point that we are constantly in the state of lying to ourselves about ourselves. In fact, he actually says that lying to others is the exception. Our narrative, according to Nietzsche, we're the good people. Those people are the bad people. Nietzsche believes that we downplay our own shortcomings and exaggerate the shortcomings of others. I think Nietzsche is exactly right, which then makes one more circumspect about accusing others. But let's come at this from a different angle. An American priest named Leo Booth wrote a book titled When God Becomes a Drug, Breaking the Chains of Religious Addiction and Abuse. That's a remarkable title. I don't endorse everything he has to say, but he has a point. Consider this. A literal absolute and dogmatic interpretation of scripture opens the door to dysfunctional religious messages and behaviors. While I accept the historical Jesus, I also recognize that much of the teachings about him, the dogma and the doctrine central to Christianity, came from people who were interpreting what the messages in the Gospels mean to them. These interpretations are often the source of today's dysfunctional messages. That's a strong statement, but I think it's warranted. He likewise says that the literal fundamentalist explanation is that God made the rules and God meets out the punishment. But of course, as we noted in the previous episode, most of the rules of evangelicalism were clearly made by human beings. I don't know of any biblical prohibitions against alcohol, tobacco, playing cards, movies, and on and on and on. Growing up evangelical, there wasn't any qualitative distinction made between those rules and the things found in Scripture. It was all one big package. But Booth points out that this becomes difficult when one actually tries to live in the world. He says, the adult child of the religious addict lives in this world, and he sees another way to live while at work and on television. Occasionally he tries to live in both worlds, enjoying the worldliness of work and friendships, but also returning to the righteousness at home. This conflict leads to confusion, self-loathing, and an eventual loss of control. Isolation, physical and mental breakdowns, drug abuse, eating disorders, sexual acting out, and violent outbursts of anger could arise. Of course, always followed by guilt, shame, and fear of God's judgment. In short, once you pit God against the world, proclaim that everyone acts from a sin nature, and make it impossible for people ever to trust their own intuitions, then one is forced to live in a truly bifurcated space. At one point, Booth quotes Matthew Fox, originally a Dominican friar who was kicked out of the order in 1993 and eventually became, yeah, an Episcopal priest. His removal was due to Cardinal Ratzinger, otherwise known as Pope Benedict. The main objection to Fox's teaching was his view regarding original sin, though he was also accused of feminist theology, calling God mother, and refusing to condemn homosexuals. Here's what Fox said in an interview with Psychology Today. I also object to original sin as the starting point of religion because of the tremendous psychic damage it has done People are already terribly vulnerable to self-doubt and guilt, especially members of minority groups, women, blacks, Native Americans, homosexuals. The whole ideology of original sin increases one's alienation and feeds the sadomasochistic energies of our culture, the sense that one is not worthy. If you start with the notion that you were born a blotch on existence, You will never be empowered to do something about the brokenness of life. That is probably the best statement I've ever read about the results of the idea of original sin. It is a toxic belief, and I don't think that phenomenologically it is correct. I simply do not think that human beings are fundamentally evil or sinful. Moreover, I think Fox is entirely right that such an idea has had enormous harmful consequences on people. But you can see why Fox simply couldn't fit anymore into a system in which original sin is a central doctrine. Having looked at the various biblical sources for this idea, I'm not at all convinced that this is what the Bible teaches. Yes, Paul says, all have sinned. And the psalmist writes, I was born guilty a sinner when my mother conceived me but those in other passages need considerable interpretation to turn them into the foundation for the idea of original sin. Which is to say, I can see why those verses are used to support the doctrine of original sin, but it's not at all clear that this is what is being taught. To get to the doctrine of original sin, you need some additional steps of interpretation. But evangelicals have really taken to heart the following. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In 2 Timothy 3.12, there is the promise that followers of Christ will be persecuted. American evangelicals are convinced that they are being persecuted, though, to be honest, it's difficult to see how this is truly the case. It's true that evangelicalism and Christianity more broadly are on the decline in the global north, It's also true that the early centuries of Christianity involved persecution, though this has been greatly exaggerated. The best work on this phenomenon is Candida Moss's book, The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. Moss teaches New Testament and early Christianity at the University of Notre Dame, not exactly a hotbed of anti-Christian thinking. You've probably heard of Pat Robertson, Here's his analysis of what's happening to American evangelicals. Just like what Nazi Germany did to the Jews, so liberal America is now doing to the evangelical Christians. It's no different. It's the same thing. It's happening all over again. It's the Democratic Congress, the liberal-based media, and the homosexuals who want to destroy the Christians. Wholesale abuse and discrimination and the worst bigotry directed toward any group in America today. More terrible than anything suffered by any minority in history. Such a statement is so crazy that it's difficult to know where to start. The first thing that leaps out from this passage is there's no actual description of persecution. It's just a very vague charge. Even when he cites Democrats in Congress, he doesn't provide any details of the persecution. As you've probably already figured out, trying to compare anything to Nazi Germany is usually a non-starter. And he ends by saying it's the worst thing ever directed towards minorities. Back when Robertson said that, American evangelicalism was still going pretty strong. It's now in decline, as in the West all Christian groups are. But you don't have to go very far back in history to realize that many different minorities have been systematically tortured and killed. In a previous episode, I mentioned a passage from the Old Testament in which God commands the following Smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Is any of that happening to evangelicals? I don't think so. Todd Starnes, a commentator on Fox News, continually provides what he thinks is evidence of such persecution but it's instructive to note that he was fired from the Baptist press for factual and contextual errors. I think that's code for exaggeration, though I'm not sure. Alan Noble in The Atlantic writes that Starnes sells us what we want to hear. We want to believe that we are the underdog, and Starnes sells us the story wrapped in the language of patriotism and faith. He also mentions a story in Citizen Link, which is something connected to Focus on the Family, which is, probably you know, run by James Dobson. A church in a small Texas town bought what had been a community center located in a residential area with the idea of turning it into both a church and a school. If you're from the States, simply mentioning residential area is probably enough to let you know what happened. In much of the world, certainly the countries where I've lived and the one in which I currently live, it's common to find a house next to a restaurant and then a house and a bakery and maybe a grocery store. This is one of the reasons I like living in Europe. Well, the U.K. is almost Europe. But the U.S. operates with zoning laws permitting only one thing in a given location. So there are business zones, school zones, housing zones. It turns out that the people who lived near the building, again, it was a residential area, simply didn't want the noise and traffic in their neighborhood. The church sued the town on the grounds of religious discrimination. But the story seems clear enough. Residents just didn't want all that noise and traffic. I don't want to spend any more time on the supposed religious persecution of evangelicals, but I did want to make it clear that this sort of claim has a long background. Put otherwise, Christians have long held the narrative that they've been persecuted throughout history. But what they've supposedly endured pales in relation to anti-Semitism. Moreover, evangelicals are more than adept at persecution themselves. But here I want to turn to the elephant in the room, Donald Trump. We've talked about the various rules and ideas of Christian conduct found in the evangelical world. We've seen that evangelicals are very driven by this ideal of purity. So how does Trump fit into this narrative of purity? I suspect there are multiple answers to this question, but here's one. The evangelical theologian Wayne Grudem was a signatory to an open letter condemning Bill Clinton for, quote, his ill use of women and, quote, manipulation of the truth. But when Trump appeared on the scene, the rules changed. Grudem earned his followers to vote for Trump, another person known for using women and manipulating truth. But you see, Trump is a Republican, which means for evangelicals, he's one of us. Grudem writes, now that Trump has won the GOP nomination, I think voting for Trump is a morally good choice. As I say so often, you just can't make this stuff up. I barely know Grudem, who was a colleague of my father. He seemed like a perfectly normal person when I talked to him. Grudem insists that Trump is a good candidate with flaws. It's interesting that part of his argument for voting for Trump is the problem of what he calls activist judges, which is why he's so adamant against voting for Hillary Clinton. As he puts it, it's all about defeating the far-left liberal agenda that any Democratic nominee would champion. Liberal Democrats are now within one Supreme Court justice of their highest goal, gaining permanent control of the nation with a five-vote majority. He goes on to say that the current liberal agenda often includes suppressing Christian opposition to its views. Now, my main problem with this sentence is I don't think that there is any way in which liberals are suppressing Christian opposition, which would involve, I think, trying to keep Christians from speaking on television or writing in a newspaper or publishing books or something else. If anything is the case, the conservative Christian media machine has been a huge success. But then Grudem goes on to say that florists, bakers, and professional photographers have had their businesses destroyed by large fines for a refusal to contribute their artistic talents to a specific event, a same-sex wedding ceremony, to which they had moral objections. That's an interesting story, Wayne. Would you like to share some of the details with us? The best Grudem can do is to cite someone named Kevin Cochran, who wrote and self-published a book expressing his religious views. He was first suspended and then fired. The mayor, Kasim Reed, considered the book to be discriminatory against the LGBTQ community. But here's the part that Grudem doesn't mention. Cochran didn't just write and publish the book. He distributed copies to everyone in his employ. He was the fire chief. Perhaps I'm missing something, but that seems to be the problem. How would you like it if your boss were to hand you a book he'd written that stated very conservative views on sexuality, or for that matter, very liberal views on sexuality? Were I his employee, I'd consider the book something like a new company policy. And now evangelicalism is falling apart. Last February, the cover story for an issue of Christianity Today was, Wait, you're not deconstructing? In that article, the readers told that, quote, the language of deconstruction borrows from literary theorists, especially Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. And my response is, when you write about philosophers you don't like, try at least to get their positions right. Foucault never talks about deconstruction. That's not his thing. But what I find so interesting, which is to say utterly appalling, is that the writer of the story presumes the moral high ground. Yes, it's true that Mark Galley, a previous editor, wrote an editorial against Trump, so perhaps this writer simply assumes that the Christianity Today position is anti-Trump. But it's just unbelievable that evangelical leaders could support Trump so enthusiastically, and not expect a massive defection from evangelicalism by younger evangelicals who had had it drummed into their heads over and over that person morality is of the utmost importance. Really? To be honest, even before this Trump hypocrisy, many of the evangelical students I knew were already worried that what evangelicals say and what they do are two very different things. Interestingly enough, there is not a single word about Trump in this story, about people leaving the faith. There is only this statement. Some might find their trust undermined after they experience abusive leadership or mishandled issues of personal integrity. When an organization fails to wisely shepherd and protect those in its care, doubt about the church's trustworthiness can bleed over into doubt about the church's teaching. What makes this statement so bizarre is that he says some might lose trust in the face of abusive leadership. What sane person continues to trust an abuser? This reminds me of what Paige Patterson, who was the boss of my boss when I worked as an announcer at KCBI, would say to wives who were abused physically and emotionally, just love your husband. I would have been more inclined to say, have you called the police? But I'm heartened to know that because of that advice, he was fired from his position as president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where it turns out my father earned one of his degrees. When close to 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016, many outside of evangelicalism thought that they had made some terrible mistake. The obvious problem with Trump was that his life didn't at all reflect what evangelicals trumpeted as their family values. To be sure, there were evangelicals who refused to vote for Trump. But many evangelical leaders not only supported Trump, but clearly supported his authoritarianism. Introducing Trump at a rally, Robert Jeffress, then pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, contended that he would make a great president because he would, quote, reverse the downward death spiral of this nation that we love so dearly. Trump's swashbuckling masculinity was, for most evangelicals, a huge asset. Evangelicals are comfortable with leaders who are controlling and demanding, for that's been their general experience with evangelical leaders. Their idea of Jesus is not someone who is meek and mild, but bold, angry, and judgmental. When Trump mocked Hillary Clinton, evangelicals rejoiced to see someone take down a woman who didn't know her place was in the kitchen. My first book was titled Graven Ideologies, Nietzsche, Derrida, and Marion on modern idolatry. It was an attempt to read much of what Jesus says as criticism of ideology and idolatry. Jesus was remarkably critical of the religious leaders of his day, and so was I. Given that I taught at an evangelical institution, though, I had to be careful how I phrased things. I couldn't come out and say something like, and the hypocrisy among religious leaders continues today in the evangelical world. Still, I think some people were able to read between the lines. My primary criticism of religious leaders, particularly of the evangelical variety, is that they tend to think that they're God. Here's how that works. While omniscience is supposed to be a characteristic of God, if you think you're speaking on God's behalf long enough, you might come to see very little difference between you and God. If you are designated as a privileged messenger, pastor, or theologian, it's only a small step from speaking for God to being God. Years later, a former student-turned-colleague who read the book assured me that I had said nothing heterodox, that was his term in the book, so glad I passed his test of orthodoxy. Interpreted in one light, that should have meant that no evangelical would have accused me of heresy, and so that should have made me feel less uneasy with the evangelical world. In another sense, though, I worried that if evangelicals found what I said to pass muster with them, perhaps they had simply missed what I hoped was a very clear, implicit critique of evangelical leaders, not least those at the school where I taught. Evangelicals see themselves as the one true Christian church. There may be evangelicals who are open-minded enough to think that maybe some other people might be Christians, but most evangelicals think they have a lock on the key to heaven. They often speak of historic Christian orthodoxy with the implicit message that only evangelicals are the true inheritors of this tradition. But now I've come to realize that hypocrisy is endemic in any culture that expects perfection and sinlessness. No one can live up to that standard. So there's a great deal of attention given to the appearance of being spiritual. In effect, the demand for purity turns into the demand for hypocrisy. Lifton writes that the ideological totalists create a narrow world of guilt and shame, which results in what he calls a guilty milieu, and a shaming milieu in which one expects to be punished, humiliated, and perhaps even ostracized. Again, although Lifton is writing this about the Chinese Communist Party, I find that his analysis is uncomfortably fitting for evangelicalism. As he puts it, the totalistic manipulators, and here again I'm quoting, become the ultimate judges of good and evil and their power is no more evident than in their capacity to forgive. You've been listening to Unbecoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. I hope you'll join us for the next episode.